1: Welcome to another edition of A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm very excited to introduce to you my special guest this week, Trey Grayson. Trey, welcome to A Current Life.
2: Thanks, Jimmy. Glad to be with you.
1: I appreciate your making the time to join us today. I would like to start off with a proper introduction for you, as I do in, in all the previous shows. Trey Grayson has served as a director of the Institute of Politics at Harvard University since January of 2011, after previously serving six years on the IOP Senior Advisory Committee. Trey previously served two terms as Kentucky's Secretary of State from 2004 to 2011, elected in his first run for political office in November of 2003, making him the youngest Secretary of State in the United States at that time. In office, Trey was recognized as a national leader in elections, civics, business service, and government innovation, and served as president of the National Association of Secretaries of State in 2009-2010. An attorney prior to his election, Secretary Grayson graduated with honors from Harvard College, where he was Institute of Politics student leader and received his JD MBA from the University of Kentucky. He and his wife, Nancy, reside in Belmont, Massachusetts, with their two daughters, Alex and Kate. Again, welcome to A Current Life, Trey, and uh, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show.
2: Great, thanks.
1: So this show is about life's journeys and the ups and downs and kind of what we all go through to reach whatever we term our success in life. So I want to start off kind of what life was like for you as a little kid growing up in Kenton County, Kentucky.
2: Well, I I grew up basically in Edgewood. I was actually born in Park Hills, but um, I don't really have much of a memory of that. My mom and dad, um, right before my sister was born, we moved over to Edgewood, and uh, it was great. I grew up uh, pretty close to a lot of my, my dad's side of the family and very close to my mom and dad. My dad, for some of the folks who are listening in Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky, may be familiar to some folks. He's a, been a long time banker in the area. And uh, when I was a kid, I like you know dreamed of playing for UK as a basketball player because I was tall. <laughs> or the Bengals or the Reds or something like that. And and um, uh, just had a great uh, a great a really great childhood, close to family, lots of great friends that I still keep up with. And uh, I think was really fortunate to to grow up in that community.
1: Well, I'm told by some of your friends, we have some mutual friends that you were yeah. a pretty good basketball player in high school and. I have a six seven tenth grader, so certainly uh, one of his great desires is, like all young kids, playing basketball is playing the NBA. I don't know if that'll happen, but certainly he's going to go on to college, and he's had a lot of colleges recruit him already in the good. tenth grade. So
2: good, well, that's great. I, I'm six five, and I was always really tall uh, for my age. I, I was actually, relatively speaking, taller when I was younger, um, and, and I didn't actually have to learn how to shot block or shot fake until I got to high school. But then I kind of slowed down and. I was a six-five down down low guy, a post guy who couldn't jump very well. <laughs> so uh, I it was pretty good. I mean, I was you know all, honorable mention all region, started for several years, and uh, my team Dixie Heights. We weren't great, uh, but I had a, a lot of great memories of playing and uh, you know, some great coaches that I that uh, coached me along along the way, and uh, it, it was a lot of fun. And as a result, I'm still a huge fan. And one of the things that's kind of fun about my my new job up at Harvard is I have a I'm going af- have an affiliation with the men's basketball team up here so I get to sort of watch those guys and think man I could be that good back you know if I just worked a little harder or a little taller <laughs> have you become a Celtics fan I have I have um I was kind of a Celtics fan anyway having gone to school at Harvard uh, not having an NBA team because there wasn't one other than really the Pacers that were that close Right. and uh so I've kind of decided that that's the one team up here I'm really going to adopt as my own. Um, I can root for the Red Sox because they're in a different league than the Reds, but I can't root for the Pats because they're in the same league with the Bengals, and I don't really care about hockey. So, yeah, the Celtics and, uh, have become my team. I got to go to two of the playoff games this year, uh, including the game, unfortunately, LeBron just went off on the Celtics at, that uh, I think it was game five or six, of that uh, Eastern Conference championship more- where he...
1: You're mourning the, the loss of Ray Allen right now, right?
2: We Yeah, we are. Um, although, you know, I think getting Jason Terry, um, mm-hmm. who at this point in his career might be a better player than Ray Allen, um, and, and also Courtney Lee, which kind of excites me because he played at Western Kentucky University. So the Celtics had a good off season, but unfortunately the heat getting Ray Allen, that makes them better. And, and there's still a lot of folks who are, are a little bitter up here at Ray, even though he's a beloved figure in the community he's probably the Celtic who was the most active in community affairs up here. And well, even though he's only here for a few years, he's, his presence in community is going to be really missed. And that, I think, helps offset a little bit of the, how'd you go to our big rival feeling that, you know, that a lot of people have right now. So let me ask you, I understand that
1: family is very important to you, and uh, as it is to many people, and I want to know kind of what those influences were like in your growth and development as a child, and if there were any particular you know, obstacles that you faced that stand out that you had to overcome at a early age?
2: I, I would say probably the biggest lesson from my family was both my mom and dad were incredibly involved in the community. You know, served on a lot of nonprofit boards and things like that. And I do remember when I was a little kid I was wondering why my dad was away from home a lot of nights, why he had to go to those meetings at the he was on the tank board and, and um a couple other boards like you know, the hospital board. Why is he why is he doing that? And then I quickly figured out um, why he was doing it; that it was important, and it really instilled in me uh, a sense of obligation to give back. So, volunteering, not just in a political sense, uh, which ultimately became my career, but but just in the, you know for any kind of nonprofit, was just something I did naturally. And so, as soon as I got back home, actually even in graduate school, I started volunteering for for various nonprofits, and that was a really important lesson. I remember Dad saying that, uh, you know, he's a banker and he obviously has to do good for his business. But he said, I remember him saying, if I can make my community a better place, that makes it a better place for us to do banking in and I'll ultimately be good for the bank. Um, so it's worth the investment of time, but it's just the right thing to do. And uh, okay. uh, that, so that was probably the most important lesson that I learned, um, you know, other than the generic, you know, hard work, play by the rules, those sorts of things. But I, I think the sense of service, it just was – came became second nature be, because of them um, you know as far as obstacles I gotta admit I was pretty lucky growing up I had you know two parents who were each other's best friends uh, my sister who was a little bit younger than me and I we were close uh, we were financially in a pretty good spot my my dad took a, a, a risk of he was at a smaller bank he was at a bigger bank and left to go to a smaller bank to get a promotion and that ended up paying off um, and so I was I was pretty lucky with that, um, and, uh, um, you know, and I think that was also part of the motivation, knowing that I had some good opportunities, and I had some talents that I, you know, also and worked hard and those sorts of things, but I wanted to to give back and be involved in, in school, but, uh, you know, other than, like, having trouble getting dates and things like that, <laughs> i, I got to admit, there just weren't a lot of, um, uh, there weren't a lot of bumps that were too big along the way i mean there are obviously hopes and disappointments and things like that 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 uh, we all go through yeah yeah but uh Well
1: it's you know. a small world because when i came back from from actually traveling a lot when i was younger that one of the first positions i was ever given was the director or one of the key developers behind cure which was the covington urban redevelopment effort yeah which was all the banks put together your dad was part of that as well as David Harriman Her- Her- and, yeah. and um, Ralph Hill. Yeah, so
2: yeah. I, I
1: know I've met him before, and and it was quite a undertaking because, quite frankly, the Kentucky Riverfront has become very successful. And at the time that we were involved with it, it was obviously you know just a lot of uh, it was secondary to what Cincinnati's was, and I think in some ways it kind of overtook it for a while. So it's.
2: Uh, it's it, interesting watching it now happen over on this side of the river. Yeah, and I think people who, who move to our, re, to Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky now, um, or, or are younger can't really appreciate what it looked like. I remember I graduated from high school in, in 1990, and outside of the, the, um, the condos there at, at the, 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 the bridge that, that David got, um, you know, that was the first real development in the mid-80s. Right. And, and you had a bunch of warehouses, and it was ugly. There was not a lot there. I, I remember, my my dad talked about how there was some there was a senior citizens tower in Covington and that was the tallest building, right. which was not something necessarily to be proud of that that's the tallest building there you know there weren't a lot of businesses and that sort of thing and uh, it's really striking um, how how much it's improved and I actually lived in that area for a couple of years right after law school I had a condo in uh, at Riverside Plaza and so it was kind of fun and, and being able to be down there and I had a lot of fun down there. Well, uh, you
1: know. I, I wanna, you were incredibly successful in high school and received several honors such as being named a Governor Scholar in 1989 and, and, you know, as I've interviewed a lot of different people as we've done this show, I'm curious, was there any jealousy on the part of other students and how did your kind of, kind of, it seemed that your life was kind of set up to really go into politics and, and you know, obviously you go through the law, you went to Harvard and all the yeah. other things, but as you're growing through these
2: and and how was your relationship and how did it develop in regard to your peers and things like that yeah it was it was it was interesting I mean, I, one of I guess the most important decisions I made was to stay uh, I, I was a Kenton county public school kid so I, I was at Hansdale and on Turkey foot, and then i was there was a decision that I had to be make to make about where do I actually want to go to high school and some some folks encouraged me to not go to Dixie. Said you know go go to school in Cincinnati or go over to Highlands over in Campbell County which is a just an amazing public high school and ultimately I made the decision to stay at Dixie mostly just because of friends and I think I also decided like you know I can I can succeed I can meet my goals by going to go to Dixie and I was fortunate because I was able to do a lot of different things and the the teachers kind of let me like my basketball coach and my academic team coach cooperated and didn't make me choose between the two sports or the two activities. And so um, on game days, I would do academic team practices and then come in and play the games. And my, coach, my basketball coach was okay with that. And sometimes I had to miss um, an academic team match because of basketball, and she was okay with that. And those kind of forcing, you know, not being able to have to, to quit something was really, you know, I was really fortunate because I think that I can't imagine experience without what it would have been like growing up without all that. As far as school and friends and things like that, um, you know, I think that there was, I I kind of was, because of my ability in sports, I kind of ran around a little bit with the jocks, but I wasn't really of the jocks per se. Mm -hmm. Um, And then because of the academics and things like that, I ran around with that crowd too. And so I was sort of in both groups, but, um, which is good. You know, I mean, I had a fair amount of, of, of good friends, but I only had a small number of, you know, kind of great friends. Um, was not in the most popular crowd per se. Um, but I think that there was, um, I do remember that when I, when I got admitted to Harvard, that was a really big deal for my school and I actually announced it over the loudspeaker. Uh, although the principal mispronounced my name, which is kind of funny. But he just, he just, he called me Tracy instead of Trey. It was something he kept, always did. I mean, he knew me. Um, but he just said, "Tracy, you know, always, but I was like, "Okay, you can mess my name up and <laughs> that's a good announcement to make, but there was a lot of people I think were really happy with that um and proud of of and kind of bringing some notoriety to the to the school um so it worked out. you know it worked out pretty well and and um you know there so, were some disappointments yeah. along the way, but it was just um uh it, there was i think people were there was a lot of pride it was interesting when I came up here to work, I saw a lot of the same thing I mean, there were some people who were, you know, why are you leaving us, why are you leaving us? But a lot of it was just, you know, go to Harvard and show, show them up, you know, show Kentucky, Cincinnati can do these things. Exactly.
1: So, you know, obviously as life often does, it comes full circle. You're back at Harvard now working yeah. with students studying government, you know, where you also went to school there. You know, how, how are you kind of in your mission right now, uh, you know, Helping you know the students and to learn from what you went through and 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 how it's affecting you know their lives right now at, at Harvard. Well, it
2: it is a great opportunity, and so what we do here at the what we call the IOP. So for listeners, it's, that's the shorthand for the Institute of Politics. We want to encourage students to have a greater interest in politics, government, public service, that sort of thing, and go into it as a career or as a volunteer. And so a lot of students look at me and they see. How young I was when I first got elected and being um, reelected at a young age, and even though I didn't win the Senate race um, at thirty eight running in a pretty major race nationwide and getting a lot of attention um, to in some respects I'm kind of a role model, and so a lot of them want to know you know what they can do to to be in that position and then hopefully win the Senate race um but it's it's interesting i i have a you know there's a couple hundred kids that we work with that they help plan activities and we mentor them and and they learn how to run meetings and make decisions and and develop small budgets and spend the money and make things like you know market themselves and their activities we do some career counseling uh i also anybody i meet from cincinnati or kentucky I decide, you know, i'm their unofficial mentor so i reach out to them uh go have coffee go have lunch or dinner with them and uh, that's that's kind of fun. So whenever – and there aren't that many of us, so whenever somebody uh, hears of me or I hear of them, we're always reaching out, and it's just something kind of special uh, in that way. And then, I, as I mentioned earlier, I help out the basketball team a little bit. Uh, it's, it's rewarding. It's really rewarding because I know that when I was 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, people were looking out for me and having gained some insights on how the world works and some things I would do differently, some things I'm glad I really – did it that way. I can pass that advice on. Like today at lunch, uh, I met with a student who, um, he actually just graduated from the University of Kentucky and he's working for the Romney campaign because they're headquartered here in Boston. And I'd met him a few years ago and he reached out when he came up here. And so he, we, he really wants to go to Harvard Law School. So we talked about what that might mean. I asked him, you know, why did he want to do it? Because not just because of the name, like what would it really do for you? And, and kind of brainstormed on the, uh, you know, on the application process. and um, that's it's fun. I just it's it just it makes you feel really good about it, um, helping these students out, and and their their idealism on both sides of the political spectrum is really important right now, and and that's something I really try to foster because if you look at what's going on in Washington, it's there's not a lot to be <laughs> optimistic about, or you know, um, public, congressional approval ratings low, the president's approval ratings low, Governor Romney's approval ratings low. Um, these kids are what keep me going, knowing that hey, they're the future, and um, they can help uh, turn this country around. Well, we're
1: we're going to talk a lot about the millennials, and kind of that's kind of a your your yeah. I think one of your primary focuses, and a little bit later in the show. But I, you know, I want to go back for our listeners. I mean, you were the youngest Secretary of State in the country at the time; you were thirty-one years old. You got uh, tell us a little bit about that experience, because I guess you know at that age and being in such a powerful position, uh, even, you know, on a state level uh, for state, you know, how, did you have any particular fears about that? And you feel that you were equipped to do that? Obviously, you did a great job. In fact, you became head of all the Secretary of State uh, towards the end of your first or second term, whatever it was. Uh, what was it like to be 31 in Secretary of State of Kentucky? It,
2: w- it was, there was certainly an adjustment period of going from, you, the people who I would meet, a lot of the people who helped out with you know, a lot of the donors for my campaign, a lot of the the people who were holding office in 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 Frankfurt, people I mean, they're all older than me. I mean, it was just um, and having to you know not calling everybody Mister or Mrs. <laughs> was was actually a little bit of an adjustment. Um, and then and then also just trying to like realize that it didn't matter how old I was. I, I had a job. It was an important job. And I had to do it. And so I, I tried my best to not think of myself as, you know, this young guy, you know, I was, um, that I just, it was my job to do it and I was just going to go do it. I think my height actually in some respects helped a little bit because hmm. even though you know, I did look young, but I think being a big guy, being 6'5", um, made me not look, I didn't have kind of a baby face and that, that helped a little bit. My predecessor was kind of young, so it wasn't like I was the, uh, um, the first young person, although my opponent, the guy I beat, was twice my age. Uh, so that was kind of interesting uh, when we would have debates. Do you think that helped you get elected? I, I believe in 03 it was a really good thing because in, that year was a change election year in Kentucky, so being young wasn't as big of a disadvantage. As it might be if it had been a different kind of race. Uh, the other thing I tried to do is embrace, all right, what is, so what are the things that really are helpful about being young? And One was that I had more interest and in, in less fear of technology. And so we really tried to revolutionize the office, and, um, and I sort of didn't know any better and just kept pushing with technology, and it worked. I mean, one of the best things about our office today is that. Um, it's it 's twenty four seven you can create businesses online you can file documents online um, all that happened quicker i 'm sure because of my age uh, than, than because of the you know where I fell in sort of the technological adoption spectrum uh, the The other piece was actually sort of relates to my current job is I went to a lot of schools and talked to students about how government worked or didn 't work in politics and and I thought that being younger might make them think. You know put a little more friendly a little, little more accessible face on on the government that they might be more willing to ask questions and about how they could run or how they could help get involved at their own you know their own schools and their local community and that uh you know i'd be a little just merely that age made me more accessible to them uh and so I tried to take advantage of that as well um and then also the other thing was you know I had a really young staff, so it wasn't just me the assistant secretary of state was my age he was thirty one um, my press secretary was like 23 or 24. Um, most of our staff was was pretty young. We we kept a couple of um, of the folks who'd been around the office for a while, uh, and um, that was I was really glad I did that. That was smart having some institutional memory. I kept a couple what? of Democrats on board. Think, you know,
1: I don't think that uh, people realize, but I mean, during your tenure, you. You know, launched the new online election services, repealed taxpayer funded Gubersburg campaigns, you know, and, you know to, to placing thousands of business documents online, you know, and really made your office accountable, you know, and the decisions. And, you know, I think the internet was certainly instrumental in helping Obama get elected. And I yeah. think that, you know, that's all you know, you were kind of ahead of your time, especially for the Republican Party in my opinion. And uh I'm curious as you went from there, you also held very prestigious positions. One, I'd like to know why the Secretary of State, not Attorney General, number one, and number two would like to kind of understand kind of the path you took from there into running
2: against Rand Paul in the GOP primary for the U.S. Senate. The, 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 I guess the why Secretary of State question, well first, I I wasn't, I didn't, I hadn't been a lawyer. I was too young to be the Attorney General. So Kentucky Uh, requires you to be an attorney, uh, practicing a Kentucky attorney. I think it's like eight years or something. Okay. So I didn't have that. Um, the office, there was sort of a, there was a substantive reason and there was a political reason. Um, the substantive reason was that I actually, because I was a lawyer, I I was actually a business lawyer. Um, one of the guys, actually, another one of our, I think, for Tim Matthews, I think, you know Tim. Sure. Um, Tim and I worked together at Keating and I did a lot of, I had some interaction with the office from the business side. And, um. I was interested in elections. This was right after the 2000 presidential election, where it was pretty clear we we're going to have to improve how elections operated in Kentucky and around the world, and that was around, around America. So that was kind of interesting to me. And so, uh, and I'd interned in the office in college. I spent a summer uh, in 1994, I guess, working in the office. So I joked when I ran for Secretary of State, I was the most qualified because I was the only one with any experience in the office, and it was only a couple months. It was. It was a couple of months more than my opponent. Um, and then the politics of it was an open seat. And it was one of those things where for 32 straight years, the Democrats had won all the constitutional offices in Kentucky. Republicans wow. had won some Senate races. But it, it was hard to get some of the more experienced um, people who'd be better candidates to run because it, it was an uphill battle and you really had to figure out, right, you got to win the governor's race and then hope that you can run a good enough ticket a campaign down ticket to win and, and you see this all the time like in Ohio in 2010 um, all those you know Richard Cordray and, and a bunch of the other Democrats lost who had won right. in 20, 2006 and it just didn't matter so much um, because there's, there's kind of a coattail effect and so that dissuaded a lot of folks who might have been better candidates than me and it allowed a 31 year old somebody I'd been around politics and in the community but I didn't have a big name but it allowed somebody like me to step up and run because I was willing to take that risk, and that, that's one of the lessons I try to communicate to to everybody, students and everybody else. That in life, you know, a lot of the biggest successes come from taking risks—not crazy risks, but calculated risks. And for me, the calculated risk was I could lose. Um, I'd be taking a year off from the law firm or my law practice. Um, that I'd have to convince my clients and my colleagues at the firm that I really wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't win, that I just didn't want to be in politics. and um, But the flip side of that was I wasn't on the cusp of being a partner. Um, so it was one of those points in time where like, All right, I think this is a risk worth taking, and I, I kind of convinced myself that even if I lost, I could still win by losing. And the way I thought about it was I'll, I'll grow as a person, I'll meet a lot of people, and even if I lose, this will probably make me – that will help me to become a better attorney. As well, and maybe be in a better position to help my community out down the road, and so I convinced true. myself, all right, I can still win even if I lose, so why not run and my wife was on board, my parents were on board, but we had you know my my wife was had a baby during the campaign, my older daughter was like three, <laughs> so it was a um, it was kind of a, a tough family decision, but um once everybody got on board, it was I jumped in and and then what happened is because I was the first Republican who ran, anybody else who got in the race would have created a primary uh, a, which would have even been less attractive, you know. Let alone, you know, it was hard enough to win the general, but now I got to win a primary too. And I kind of made my own destiny by jumping in the race early. And my theory was that that it might be a good year to be a Republican, and the the guy I was running against um, had been a, um kind of a he'd been a local elected official in Louisville before, and kind of represented the old way of doing things. And so that maybe somebody young with some ideas might be something the voters would look for, and it, the, the risk ended up uh, the calculated risk ended up paying off.
1: So in 2010, you ran against Rand Paul in the yeah. GOP primary for the U.S. Senate. I'm curious how much or what you believe that the you know that this whole Tea Party thing versus conservatism kind of disagreement had as an effect on the election because you were endorsed by Cheney and Santorum, and you know you lost by a by you know a, a the 23 point margin but yeah i got killed you know, people forget you got, that which is good
2: <laughs> you know well
1: the interesting thing is you know you clearly i mean one of the things about taking risk uh, when you're young is you certainly can overcome them and yeah. you don't need to have long memories and and uh cuz we all go through that and i i admire you for for chal- taking those challenges cuz you know you didn't take the safe road uh, like a lot of people do in life so i admire that about you i um uh, you know and looking at it i'm curious was the timing just really off because of the Tea Party thing, or yes. was there something significant that took place?
2: No, the, the, it was it was bad timing. Uh, it was um, I'm. Conve- I mean, it was interesting. After I lost the race, I asked uh, a, a friend of mine who's involved in politics, but wasn't directly involved with the campaign, so he wouldn't feel ownership in the loss, and others might be feel more likely to be honest with them, but just go around and ask a bunch of people, like, what did we do right? What didn't we do right? What did we do wrong? What could we do better? So that if I ran again, or somebody I cared about I could give advice to, and everybody we talked to at the end of the day, yeah, we made a lot of mistakes. I made mistakes as a candidate. We made some strategic errors, which I think made the loss larger than it would have been. But at the end of the day, I was the wrong candidate running at the wrong time against the perfect candidate to take take, advantage Take, up or take advantage of the situation, which was uh, you know, a Republican electorate that was looking to shake things up in Washington, that was very mad at the president and the Democrats in Congress, but also mad at a lot of the Republican leadership uh, for putting the country and the party in the position that it was in. And, and we didn't completely understand all of that. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, I went to a couple Tea Party rallies, but it wasn't clear that the 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 sentiment was so widely held by so many Republicans. And, right, right. You know, when, and I'll cite the strategic error we made, which we thought was a brilliant idea at the end, was Mitch McConnell cut an ad, or he looks in the camera and says, I need Trey Grayson to help make Washington work better. <laughs> and, you know, he pulls off the charts among Kentucky. I mean, these are Republican voters, not you know, Democrats. Right. He pulls off the charts among them, but I think that what happened is they're like, yeah, Mitch, I'm for you, I'm glad you're there, but, you know, you're kind of part of the problem too, and how dare you tell me what to do? And that, so my the margin, which was close, got even bigger, <laughs> yeah okay. uh, I think because we made him you know because we did that, and um but I was just I wasn't the right kind of candidate if it had been a couple years earlier, I think I would have been you know I think I could have won um Rand was a particularly challenging candidate to run against, I mean he had the brand name of the family, mm-hmm. which in that environment and actually still to this day. Uh, of the, had the his father represents somebody who you know, tells you what he thinks. He's very principled, and even if you disagree with him, you, you know you respect that he tells you right. exactly what he believes. Right. And and there's a, a I think a stronger libertarian strand that's coming through in the Republican Party today uh, than we than people thought. And I think the other thing is in Kentucky we weren't used to having strong competitive primaries in the Republican Party, and so um, not all this was clear at the time. It's clearer now, and in uh, and, and the, the whole the the narrative was just – I just was on the wrong side of the narrative. And at first, there was this fight between the moderates and the conservatives in the party. And the, Rand was the conservative, and I was the moderate. And then people quickly figured out, no, that's not right. Um, but then it was the establishment versus the insurgency and the Tea Party. And that prob- that was the right narrative. And i we struggled to, to get the voters and the media to think of it differently. Um, and it's – you know, I, I'm very much at peace with what happened. Um, voters spoke. We gave it our best. Uh, I've actually been working to try to get Senator Paul to come speak at Harvard and I I'm pretty confident we're going to get it done in the fall and I can't wait to introduce him uh when he comes up here. Uh it's just a matter of scheduling and he wants to do it and we're going right. to make it happen.
1: So but, what you know what we'll do is we're going to take a short break. Uh you know, I, I do want to come back and talk about uh you know, your your program at Harvard. I want to talk a little bit about your family and and kind of what it's like to having moved moved to 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 Massachusetts from Kentucky and then kind of take, really get into the issue of the millennials and the effect on this uh, election Uh, this is Jimmy Gould we're going to take a short break we're here with my special guest Trey Grayson you're listening to A Current Life brought to you by Smart Water please stay tuned Do you have career aspirations that seem beyond what you think you can afford? At Ohio Midwestern College, you can transform your hard work into a bachelor's degree in business administration, education, or Christian ministries.
2: Call 1-888-887-4300 or check out www.omw.edu to learn how you can afford a fully accredited
1: degree today. Ohio Midwestern College, affordable, professional, genuine. Our open enrollment starts today. Call us now at 1-888-887-4300 or on the web at www.omw.edu. That's 1-888-887-4300 or on the web at
2: www.omw.edu.
0: Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, myth. Reality and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
0: You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is life at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program.
1: Welcome back to A Current Life. This is your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm here with my special guest, Trey Grayson. Trey, um, after losing the in the primary to uh, um, Rand Paul... Uh, You were offered the position as director of Harvard's IOP uh, program at Harvard. What was that like? Did you know that the offer was coming, and how difficult was the change from the political uh, arena where you had served as Secretary of State for
2: several years uh, into academia? And why into academia? It was was an interesting opportunity that that, uh, I never really thought would be present itself I basically i found out that the director's position was going to open up right before the primary my primary ended and i remember our, actually hearing about it and i said to my wife kind of in passing and sort of as a joke i said hey this thing doesn't work out which it's going to work out but if it doesn't work out would you have any interest at all in moving to boston if i could get this job and she's like yeah sure but you know you're going to win so and then we forgot about it and then several months later I got a call from a search firm because I was on the board, what we call the Senior Advisory Committee of the Institute of Politics, and they were talking to me about you know, what should we look for in a new director, and I casually but intentionally said I would love to do that job someday. Uh, this would have been like in July or something like that, so a couple months after the primary loss. I was trying to figure out what to do. And um, a couple months later, the search firm called back and said, remember when you said you'd love to do this job someday? I said, yeah. What if that someday were now? <laughs> And uh so I so let me call the boss. So I quickly called my wife, and she said, "Yeah, let's talk and it, over the next couple of months we were able to work it out and it, it was a b it's a big it was a big big decision because I had to leave the secretary of state's office in my my last year, so a little early i I gave up the opportunity to run for something in twenty eleven and actually a little bit longer than that because of The politics of being away, and also like the the residency requirements. I I can't run for governor now if I move back tomorrow for six years, uh, for example. So there's some. some, It was a big decision, and that's even before you get to the fact that going to Harvard, working at Harvard, is not the best career move (laughs) for an elected official. Um, That being said, it was a tremendous opportunity to come up here, work with students, as we talked about earlier to give back. This was an institution that really helped me. Uh, we're nonpartisan. Uh, and, and given the state of affairs right now, um, being able to work with both sides and bring speakers. That's, that's and a good thing. It's a good thing. And so yeah. um, it's fun. I'm, I'm a political junkie, so it's a great place to be right now where you get to... And, and also, I get to spend more time with my family. On the weekends, I'm not crisscrossing the state, which I enjoyed. I loved, loved all that. But it's I learned how to you know I just got a smoker the other day and I learned how to smoke my first ribs um a couple Sundays ago, and that was you know I never had any time to do things like that so it's it's an adventure for the family they've I've been here a year and a half they came up last summer finishing up the school year uh making friends, learning how to pack my con have a yad you know <laughs> things like that exactly um It's been a good adjustment the family i think is adjusted a little quicker we miss home we want to get home someday soon. Uh, but it's it's just a great opportunity and a real good national platform to try to encourage so, students and, and, and try people, encourage people to approach politics in the right way.
1: So as Director of Harvard's Institute of Politics, I, I assume the upcoming election has to be at the forefront of many of your discussions with your uh, students. You've, yeah. you've been a recognized expert on the political beliefs of 18 to 29 year old vo- voters, which you also which is also known as millennials, uh, who really have become America's largest generation. How do you uh, at the institute recognize and promote that importance of getting involved politically, you know, for that age group, and how has this election affected or been affected by them?
2: Well, they they as you said they're the largest generation really on the planet. They're they're extraordinarily diverse, and in many ways they were the key factor in President Obama's victory and and the primary the Iowa caucus that he won the first uh, at the beginning of that race which really propelled him to, to victory. A lot of young first-time caucus goers showed up because they believed in him and were inspired by him, and that helped him to to upset sec, um, now Secretary of State Clinton in the primary. And in the general election, the margin was big enough that he didn't win solely because of the young voters. But Indiana and North Carolina, for example, were two states he got out wins solely because of the, the, his performance among young voters. And what he did is he inspired young voters to come out in larger numbers and then vote for him with a, with a larger plurality uh, than, for example, 2004. Uh, so they were a key part of his coalition, and we study them. We survey millennials every semester, uh not just Harvard students, not just college students, but all 18- to 29-year-olds, and we do it every semester so we can kind of track it a little bit. And what's striking is this generation is being hit really hard by the recession uh, and and I'll use that term because for them it's still a recession there's a large percentage of unemployed uh, underemployed they have a lot of college debt uh, they're the ones that are you know not thinking the future is very bright for them and these are the ones who are you're supposed to start off idealistic and they're not starting off idealistic right now when they look at the future of the country and so the the president's concern is that this important piece of his coalition Won't be there for him. You know, I don't know that they're necessarily going to go vote for Mitt Romney, but, uh, I think there's a third person in the race, which is staying home. And all of our survey data shows that there's a real potential that young voters will, will turn out in lower numbers, uh, than, than Obama needs to, uh, to be comfortable about a re-election win. And Pew did a survey that they came up with the result, or Gallup, excuse me, a couple weeks ago showed that their, the interest in voting is about 20 points below what it was in 08 and even 04. So it's a, it's interesting to see. We, we thought we were seeing the campaigns figure out how to reach millennials through, through technology, through just the fact they were getting older and, and getting into the political process. And it may well be that uh, what we saw was a sort of a blip and not not a trend so, so let
1: me uh, let, let me interrupt and ask you a couple of things because i'm going to take the opposite view about something which probably and I have an, a number of millennials in my family, yeah, and we have a n- numerous interns. We started a program twenty years ago where we bring college students that come into work in our private equity fund, and you know we talk about this all the time because we 're very we 're like you political junkies as well as well as sports junkies and uh, so here's my description of a millennial, okay, whether it's right or wrong. This is kind of what I see. I see a generation that's grown up with texting and instant message, fast food's taken over family dinners, manners and courtesy, things like opening doors for the elderly or saying sir and ma'am have been forgotten. Uh, many people would argue that they've lost the ability to truly communicate with one another. And and I have grave concerns about our future, and I also feel, and and I'm not alone in this, because we've got a lot of people on the show who feel that manners and courtesy and just basic common communication things are completely out the window, Uh, that our country is drifting towards socialism, away from the democratic system, because I think not only are the millennials not jazzed about the election, but they are completely cynical about the election. They're completely turned off. They're not for Romney, and they're not for Obama, and there's a whole bunch of what I call a kind of a malaise that's setting in. With that stay-at-home voter who does not have a clue what to do or even care anymore. Now, is that an unfair description or too cynical
2: myself? I don't. I mean, maybe it's a little cynical, but I don't know that it's unfair. I mean, I think a lot of what you said I would totally agree with, and I think it's supported by the data. I'll talk with the. Let's go back to the first part about sort of how they are, you know, sort of socially and the communication. Um, they are very different. They communicate very differently. Um, that the texting is a is a is a big deal. The instant, the demand for instantaneous access instantaneous communication. Some of the students ask me how I survived in college without being able to text right. and call people. I'm like, well, you know, we were late, we didn't do as much, and we hung out in our rooms more often. And I right. think it turned out okay. But that's, but that's kind of the way they're wired. I mean, and one of the things we encourage the campaigns and the nonprofits and the government agencies that we work with is to, okay, this is the way they are. So you're going to have to embrace it and, and take advantage of the fact that they know how to, these other communication devices. It is great though that you can get news and updates and information about your friends from news sources, from your favorite sports teams quickly and instantaneously. So how can we, how can we capture that and turn that into a positive? Um, the manners, you know, we have to work on all that. <laughs> um right. the flip side of that is this is a very diverse and tolerant generation that, the, you know, older generations Maybe had very strong manners, but they were maybe had some problems with people of different races or different sexual mm-hmm. orientations and things like that. So it kind of it can cut both ways a little bit. Politically, I think you're you're absolutely right. The um, the 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 concern that you know, the, the unemployment rate. The if you ask what is the biggest issue, it's the economy by far. If you ask um, what what institutions do you trust, the military is number one. All right. levels of government are pretty darn low on this, and, and Congress is especially low. Wall Street's low. So there's a real lack of trust for institutions uh, by the millennials. They actually have a high level of trust to the United Nations. I, I think that's because they don't really know any better. <laughs> They'll figure yeah, out that the U.N. You UN's and I would be on
1: opposite pages. on I just
2: think that the U.N. is not very effective. But I, it's, I think the reason why it's so high, though, for them is they recognize the value of 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 uh countries getting together and talking. Yeah, the and, potential of it. Yeah. The potential of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're maybe not that far apart on that. Yeah. But um No so I meant you and
1: I would be on the same page. Oh on the same side. side. Oh yeah. We
2: would be on the opposite, yeah. opposite sides of them. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, I would I would I would have rated them a little bit uh a lot lower. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, but at the, so, but we saw them that, the you know, in 08, and then some of, their volunteerism, they're still fairly high. I mean, this is, they do give back to their communities a lot. And so I think the challenge for those of us who are trying to get them to, to vote, to step up into the leadership roles that we need in our communities is to think about how, you know, how in the past have they been inspired, and how can we get them to take that commitment to each other and to public service? Um, you know, for example, the, the, one of our the guys who works for me tells a story of a he had a focus group with a bunch of millennials and this guy had a shaved head and he was asked if he did any community service he said no and he said well, just tell me later on he said tell me about your hair you know why what, why do you keep your hair cut so short why do you shave your head he said well every um, every I always grow my hair out and then every year I cut it and give it to um, to locks for life wow and he's like well that's public service. That's getting yeah. back. He's like, I hadn't really thought about it that way. It's just something I do. I'm like, well, that is something you do and, and so how can we connect that? And and I think current leaders like ourselves we're not setting great examples all the time um, in showing them that these those millennials that they ought to trust institutions. Do you think they're misunderstood? I think they are I think they are a little bit misunderstood, yeah. Um, and, and so you think it's they just, misunderstand us. And I think it goes both ways. Yeah, and so we—I think each of us has to step into that gap a little bit, Uh and that's something, like I said, that we're encouraging people to do. And it's—it's it's inter- even the other things that I've noticed that like they really are into videos. Um, yeah. this isn't quite true, but when I need to go find something out, I Google it. A lot of the eighteen to twenty-year-olds, the college students in particular, or high school students, they'll go into YouTube to find answers to things. They mostly YouTube the answer rather than Google the answer, um, and so there's, the videos are a big thing. Um, not as much reading. Um, you know, they don't read newspapers anymore. But then they get what's interesting is they go to newspaper websites to get their news. You know, they go exactly. to the NewYorkTimes.com, but they don't read it. The the paper.
1: I think I think they actually get as much news, if not more news. But they're getting it from places that don't necessarily, in my opinion, have validity. So yes. therefore, they may tell you that they read something or heard something. More than likely, saw something because they're very visual, right. in my opinion. Right. And they'll then think that's the gospel. And and the problem is, you know, they there. I think that the tolerant factor about you know where in our generation or even my generation you know, there was less tolerance for people that were different. I think that they're more tolerant. I think that the issue from an economic standpoint, I find interesting. I don't think that they understand the tax structure of our country and how they're very resentful that they've got to have taxes taken out of their paychecks when we make their paychecks. Now, you know, my point is, uh, so I see a lot of contradiction in in doing it. I'm, I'm curious about two things. One your view of, of this socialism thing, which is a big, big cornerstone of the Republican campaign, that Obama is socializing the country, which I tend to agree with a little bit. Um, of course, they deny it. And secondly, you know, that we are in a capitalist society and, you know, that success should be looked up to, not demeaned, which I think has been an unfair portrayal of Romney. Because, look, at private equity, you win some, you lose some. And, and that's just the nature of the, of the game. You don't necessarily run any business. I mean, he didn't run any business. So my, that leads me to my big question, which is how important is it to Romney or Obama that they get the millennial vote and
2: will that be the turning point of the election? Given, given how close this election appears to be and, and will likely be when we get to November, the millennial vote's key. I mean, basically Romney's got to lose it. Narrowly, or more narrow than John McCain did, uh, and Obama's got to kind of knock it out of the park. And uh, Virginia, um, Ohio, you know, Iowa, New Hampshire, um, Florida—you know, these are the these are the big swing states. And there's a few, you know, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan. There's a few others, but the, these these battleground states are going to be so close. So, so the, the young voters' mindsets are getting getting them to come your way or getting them to you know, to, to come out and to vote at all if they're already for you, which is Obama's challenge, is going to be a big factor. I think what's interesting is is there are a lot of contradictions when you look at the millennials' views on various issues. Um we we polled recently and asked them what's better to get the economy going, tax cuts or more government spending? And by a decent margin they said tax cuts. Yeah. Um, but then if you ask them about uh, you know, and is reducing the debt important, yes. But then if you ask them about specific issues that or areas that might need to be cut, they don't really want those cut. Um Exactly. If you ask them about social security reform, the preferred outcome is private accounts. Uh which is kind of interesting. There is there is a little bit of a libertarian streak um across the board. You know, it's they're more supportive of gay marriage as sort of a libertarian point of view, although they are a little more pro life than their than their um you know, older. You know, the, the Gen X, my generation. Um, so it's just interesting across the board, and some of this is just youth. I mean, you know, you don't believe at twenty two what you believe when you're thirty two or forty two, and and people's views change, and so they're having to sort all this out uh, in, in in the midst of this this recession. Um, and and I, I'm with you. Obviously, I do share some concerns about the the we need entrepreneurs. We need small business owners to get this country and this economy moving again. And we can't begrudge people's success. And, um, a guy like Mitt Romney, who has done a lot for this country as a, as a leader, as a volunteer, um, you know, you might not agree with him on issues. That's fine. But, uh, um, it's been disappointing to me to see, have a guy like that be, be torn down. I'd rather have, you know, it's fair to criticize his, his uh, record as governor and his views and things like that. But, uh, this this economy, this flux, this entrepreneurial nature of our economy, right. it's what's made us so great? We've been able to adapt over the years to all the changes of our economy, and it's so why we have the biggest and best economy let, in the world. Let me world.
1: ask you this question: since with all the research you've done, how important is the cool factor? Because the cool factor with Obama was clearly there. I mean, in, yeah. Following him, it was like a rock star, but that rock star thing is kind of worn off, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I, I think. I mean, I elect- think the cool
2: factor. If if Romney's not cool, like we no. just, you know, he's no. just not cool. Um, the the cool factor obviously was a big factor for Obama. Uh, I think it's why, you to a certain extent, you see a little bit of a split um, between the older. Like we've we've seen the 25 to 29 year olds are still a little bit more pro Obama than the younger ones, and I think part of that is because the cool factor. They still remember that. You know, they were more engaged and more attached to him, and the younger voters or the first-time voters, they don't have that attachment because he's not as cool now. I mean, he's he looks older, <laughs> you know, because the presidency ages you. You know what his record is. Um, even when he's he's um, you know on Jimmy Fallon and, and on ESPN and all that, um, it's the second and third and fourth time he's done it all. So that that for for the president, um, it, it's it's not like it was in 8 you know, oh eight, he was the coolest man on the planet. He was the biggest celebrity. And right. people, and even if you didn't agree with him, when, I remember thinking when he was sworn into office, you know, like, I hope he succeeds. Our country needs him to be a success. Exactly. On exactly. a lot of levels. And, and he had a 70 plus percent approval rating. So clearly a lot of people, including a lot of Republicans who didn't agree with him, who didn't vote for him, right. wanted him to succeed. And, and, and so these millennials see all this.
1: So what what effect do you predict the results of the upcoming election will have on the state of our current national economy? And do you see parallels between our current economical slump and the Great Depression and kind of where we're headed? we only got a few minutes left in the program. I kind of want to kind of tie into the economy and and the election, and then I want to ask a a question really about your future and where you're headed.
2: Well, you know, there's some advantages that we have right now. If you look at sort of the economy is very global. And um, and in some respects, the, the, the problems in the rest of the world give us a window to straighten up our problems a little bit, because relatively speaking, we're still a pretty good investment for capital compared to most of our other country on the planet. So we have an ability, I think, to kind of right our fiscal house, to, to invest in the right way. And um, with, with um, the, the boom in the life sciences that's about to take place, a lot of that boom can take place in America, and that can help with some high-paying jobs and, more importantly, help maybe the healthcare uh, to get a little more rationalized. But we, what we have to do, though, is to be able to take advantage of all these and not regulate the, the biosciences to death uh and to not uh you know tax and regulate every other you know the manufacturing that's starting to come back a little bit. Um, it's just gonna be a different kind of economy. Uh the the the, the large employers, the large scale manufacturing, that's not going to be here. But some a lot of the skills are going to be out there. But it's a wrenching transition. Uh and we're gonna have to figure out how to do higher ed better and cheaper as well and, and technology may be the answer there. So it's I tend to be optimistic about the future uh even though we have great challenges and great problems and, and that, that if we get the right kind of leadership in the White House and in the Congress and set the right rules in place that uh allow uh employees and employers to to uh do the things they've been doing all these years, I think we'll be in a much better spot. And so my you know I hope Romney wins and I hope that uh he gets a little more help in the Congress and we can get the right kinds of things in place and, and that then they're willing to make tough decisions on getting the budget in order because that's gonna be that's gonna be necessary. Well, the trick—that's the
1: trick—is what do you cut? and What can you live with cutting? And and you certainly can't raise taxes if you want the economy to to grow. And certainly, from a private equity standpoint, yeah,
2: yeah, we're going to we going to have so to do taxes. We create jobs, so you know yeah. you don't want to kill that one. Yeah, and we're going to have to reform the tax cut. I mean, there's just a lot of big decisions, and and I mean, to a certain extent, they kind of come together. I mean, you can do sort of a grand bargain with taxes and um, budgeting and and getting. Because but the real thing is the entitlements, because the entitlement is the long term, right death knell to the economy. So let me
1: ask you, because we only got a, unfortunately about a minute left this country goes this show goes into about 180 countries and, and is downloadable on iTunes you know under currentlife.com. so we certainly suggest to our listeners to let their friends know to, to tune into this show and also they can download the show that we're uh, with Trey Grayson today. Um, as you look back on your journey, I always ask this question: What do you feel is the broader meaning of life, more in a spiritual sense? in the next, you know, minute or
2: so, I think uh, I look and see a lot of strands in my life that kind of come together. Whether it's faith and family, um, friends, professional, all that stuff is sort of honestly coming back to this, the golden rule. You know, do unto others as you'd have done unto yourself. Work hard. Play by the rules be a good person um, you put yourself in the position to have enough breaks that'll go your way and uh and giving back um, but I just find that uh it's 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 a good it's a good recipe and it's a good way to live life and um and always as I guess I always say you know always try to be optimistic about uh the, about the future and I think that attitude helps as well and and all those strands whether it's like I said faith church all these things all kind of come to those conclusions uh, for me oh well,
1: our time is up. Uh, we've enjoyed having Trey Grayson on the show. Uh, I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning into A Current Life on the Voice of America Variety Channel. You can download the show on, uh, on acurrentlife.com. This is your host, Jimmy Gould, signing off. And please join us next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern. Until next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with hope. Inspiration, success, and Trey. One, it's been an incredible pleasure. You're only forty years old, so we expect you back in Kentucky very soon, and we hope that you'll visit with us and that you're going to be seeking political office again because we need you.
2: And, Thanks, Jimmy. Uh, I'm looking forward want to, to thank it.
1: Thank you for for being on the show. Thank you to you and to my listeners. Take.
0: Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week.